Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be covering H.P. Lovecraft's 1919 story, The Doom That Came to Sarnath. This story was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters, and I want to say thank you so much for that support and for your participation in the process here. I really, really love this story. It's a very early Lovecraft story. I think very early Lovecraft stories often are quite divisive among the the Lovecraft fandom. (laughs) The Doom That Came to Sarnath, I think in particular, is a, a divisive or polarizing story among Lovecraft fandom because it is often considered to be uh, one of the dreamland stories. And those dreamland stories are, I think they're either love or hate uh, among Lovecraft fans. I'm in the love camp for sure. That's something that we uh, definitely will talk about in the discussion part of the episode. But before we get to any of that, uh, we need to actually do the recap. So Brandon, why don't you get us through this story? The opening paragraph of this story lets us know where we are situated Geographically speaking. So we're in the land of Mnar on the shores of a vast lake that has no inlets or outlets. So it feels to me like this is probably a crater lake or something like that. And on the shores of this lake, there used to be a huge city called Sarnath, but it's not there anymore. Before Sarnath came to Mnar, I mean the city, Another city stood on the shores of the lake, and this city was as old, we're told, as the lake itself. Perhaps another hint that it's a a kind of crater lake. This city was called Ib, and Ib and its people were both very, very ugly. Uh, According to the brick cylinders of Kadatharan, the people of Ib had bulging eyes, pouting, flabby lips, and curious ears. And also, they had no voice. Later on, we're going to learn that their flesh had the consistency of jelly. The Kadatherons here also know how both the inhabitants and the city of Ib seem to have appeared overnight. Now, the Ib also worshipped a green stone idol uh, that was in the likeness, chiseled in the likeness of Bakrag, the great water lizard. Right, Brandon. So... You've given us, I mean, in just a handful of sentences here, you've given us five names, and you have actually pared it down from what Lovecraft does in this opening. (laughs) This story is a lot of names. There's just going to be a lot of names here. And essentially what Lovecraft is doing in this story, and in particular in the opening of it, is inventing a secondary world and giving us a history of it. So there's a city called Sarnath, except there isn't, you know, not anymore. And this is a story about what happened to that city. And of course, we know from the title, Doom is going to factor in here. But also, this is a story about the whole history, not just of Sarnath, but its entire region. And, and that's because this is all made up. This is a fantasy setting that Lovecraft is inventing here. And so as we go, I will do my best to explicate some of the names, because most of these names actually do show up in other places. And that includes Sarnath. There is a real place on Earth with this name. It's in India. It's actually a fairly important place in Buddhism. It's the the first place that the Buddha taught other people. And so it was an early Buddhist pilgrimage site. Uh, I don't don't mean that it's not a site anymore. I mean, it still is a pilgrimage site. It gets about a million visitors a year, but that it is one of the first pilgrimage sites. And because it has been serving this purpose for so long, there are some very cool ruins in addition to 
the currently functional religious sites. Sarnath, uh, the the city in India, the real Sarnath, also shows up in the Kipling novel Kim, which I would actually love for us to cover someday, or and I don't know any Kipling someday. Yes, would be great. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in a sense, that's apropos of nothing. Except that also maybe all of this that I've just said is really apropos of nothing. It is unclear if Lovecraft knew any of this. It's certainly unclear if he wanted us to be thinking about any of it. The one thing that maybe makes this worth thinking about is that Sarnath is in northern India, and we have seen Lovecraft invoke the Himalayas a lot while we've been covering At the Mountains of Madness. Mostly, this has been in terms of the Plateau of Lang and then also the painter Nicholas Rorick. We do get two other names here that we also encountered in our coverage of At the Mountains of Madness. These are the city Ib in the land of Nar. Uh, we get these in chapter five, where it is part of a long list that we actually spent a lot of time on. It's this list that includes Villiers, also the nameless city, also Atlantis and Lemuria. This list of names, this is dire thinking about how the Antarctic city that they've just discovered is super old, like this list of other super old cities that he knows. And he does specifically think of Ib in in this list here as a pre-human blasphemy. And of course, what's happening here functionally in the story from Lovecraft's perspective is that At the Mountains of Madness is very late H.P. Lovecraft. And so he's calling back to this other story that he's written, which is, you know, that's a fun thing to do if you're, you know, inventing worlds. It's fun to refer to worlds that you've invented in your later stories and so on. We do get some other names here that show up later in Lovecraft as well. These are in the Dreamland stories. But what I really want to point out here is that two of these names are associated with how we in modernity can even know anything about Ib, which is that some of this information appears on these brick cylinders of Kadatheron that you mentioned, Brandon, and then one of the names that you very generously left out so that it wasn't super dizzying uh, is that we also learned that there are papyri from some place called Ilarnik that have survived. Uh, this is something also that we will take up in the discussion. So yeah, it's a ton of names, a ton to keep track of here. Yeah, I'm really trying to to stick to the plot. I, I did hear about that uh, or read about that Lovecraft claims he hadn't heard of, of Sarnath before writing or publishing this story, you know, when it was brought to his attention. Um, that's because I was poking around the internet to see if anybody had attempted uh, a kind of summary of this story in the kind that we do, just to see how people approached retelling this story. Um, and I, I think most people have not tried to do that. They're mostly say, hey, the title's called The Doom That Came to Sarnath. And what the story is about is uh, doom that comes to Sarnath. So <laughs> <laughs> we have more, but there, there is there is more to this story. And I know you love all of this, uh, uh, I don't know, historic work that Lovecraft is putting into this story or, or this touch of history. Uh, and there's more to that, to this story, obviously. So the city of Ib, as as you've been pointing out, Glenn, uh, but what we learn about it from this story is that the city of Ib is very ancient, uh, and it predates Sarnath by some aeons. But eventually, men found this lake in the land of Nar, and they found precious metals in the earth. And so they built Sarnath. It's not clear if they built it on top of these mines, but they built them near the places where they found these precious metals. And of course, at that time, 
early on in the building of Sarnath, if you were to look out your window in Sarnath, you would see the city of Ib and its people. And that was not a sight that the Sarnathians, I'll call them at this point, <laughs> particularly relished in. They did not like the Ibian sculptures, in particular, the large gray monoliths kind of uh, gave them the willies, I suppose. In fact, the more the Sarnathians had to deal with the Ibians, like even just looking at them, the more their hatred of them grew. This is like a really bad college roommate situation, essentially. <laughs> so the men of Sarnath marched against Ib, killing everyone and pushing, quote, their queer bodies into the lake with long spears because they did not wish to touch them. So the men of Sarnath destroyed Ib and saved only the green stone idol chiseled in the likeness of Bakrog, the water lizard. Then they brought the idol back to their city as a symbol of their conquest over Ib, and the Sarnathians set up the idol in their temple. And then that night, or the night after, uh, some weird lights were seen over the lake. And in the morning, the idol was gone, and Taran Ish, the high priest, was found dead. But before he died, he scrawled upon the altar of chrysolite the sign of doom. Spooky. Yeah, this is very spooky. I mean, it's very ominous. And, you know, it's cool. Lovecraft has put all of this in the title, which is a, a way, of course, of giving us suspense rather than surprise. And we're getting some beats here in that suspense. And I think that a lot of what Lovecraft has done here is actually very, very cool. Though I do want to be clear that I'm aware that Lovecraft has just narrated a, a genocide. We're going to talk about that in the discussion. And while I would never advocate for or defend a genocide in the real world, the description of this, the description of the coming of men and their assault on the people of Ib, I think is really quite fascinating. Uh, we've got some classic sword and sorcery style world building here. I mean, much of this material, I mean, it really reminds me of what Robert E. Howard does in The Phoenix on the Sword in order to establish Conan's world and that world's deep history, uh, though that world is already a world of men, you know, men with a capital M there. And I think also there are some ways here in which Lovecraft is really even anticipating Tolkien with phrases that describe the people of Ib as lingering too late in the world, even after the coming of men. And so, yeah, this is a big thing that we'll take up in the discussion as well. But then, in addition to these sword and sorcery, or, or maybe just fantasy elements, we could call them, we also have some horror elements in this story, or in this part of the story. Lovecraft includes this tradition that the people of Ib maybe came to Earth from the moon, which is definitely a sort of early iteration of some, some cosmic horror here from very young Lovecraft. And then there is also this classic horror trope, uh, the horror trope that supplies really the plot of the story, which is uh, you loot an object. You take it home with you, and then you die, and there's just generally a curse, right? And and this is the real hook, right? This is the, the scrawled doom on the altar is playing into this kind of cursed object story. The presence of the Ibians here uh, with the crater lake, the precious metals, these strange stone monoliths, all of this is alien invasion stuff. These aren't, you know, like elves turning to jelly because the sun has changed or something like that. You know, this this really feels to me like uh, uh, an ancient race of aliens absolutely presaging the whole idea of cosmic horror. Um, except that the, the, the people of Ib here, whatever they are, 
they feel kind of like the underdogs in this story. And, I, and I'm really excited to talk about how Lovecraft frames this genocide because um, it's almost as though we're, we're meant to be rooting for the Ib, even though this, you know, in the tradition of sword and sorcery stories, it's the, the, the conquesters and the, the men of strength that we're asked to root for. So I'm excited to talk about that. Well, after this night of uh, the Doom Scrawl by Terran Ish on the altar of Chrysolite, uh, lots of time passes in the story. And the only people who are left to remember the Doom writ upon the altar are the priests and old women, these keepers of knowledge in the Sarnath Empire. Uh, and it turns out that Sarnath, after the conquest of Ib, becomes a major power in the world. They start trading with Ilarnek, for instance, and they become very wealthy and powerful, and they conquer other regions. And eventually, Sarnath becomes the capital city of a sprawling kingdom. It's got 50 streets that go parallel to the lake. It's got 50 streets going perpendicular to the lake. It's built like a grid, like a, like a proper city should be. And it's got a gate at the end of each street. And the streets are paved with either onyx or granite. And, and you wouldn't believe the houses and palaces either in, in Sarnath. They're full of beautiful fountains and ivory. The city's got gladiatorial games where men are fighting elephants and that might be the least interesting thing that you see that day. There's religion in Sarnath too. The temples or, or places of worship are more magnificent than even the houses and palaces. The, the high priests live in these temples, and they lead the city in worship of Zokalar and Tamash and Loban. Uh, the statue of these gods are so real that it's like the gods are, are right there with you while you're worshiping them. But in a high room of the temple... The priests perform an ancient and secret rite in detestation of Bakrog, and they keep in that high room the altar which bore the doom scrawl of Taran Ish. So you have uh, really, really pared this down, Brandon. I mean, Lovecraft's <laughs> description of Sarnath in its golden age is literally half the word count of this story. You've you've boiled it down here into, I don't know, about 10% of what Lovecraft does. I mean, it, it just is a... It is really just a massive block of description that is concerned with what everything is made of and how many streets there are. And look, I know that that is not to everyone's taste. I also definitely know that it would never be published today. Something like this would never be published today. But nonetheless, I love this sort of thing. This is the type of thing that I go to this fiction for and really go to most fiction for. And I think Lovecraft's thick description of Sarnath is a really cool effect that provides a link between Sarnath, between this imaginary city that he's making up, and places like Troy and Babylon, because these are really the types of descriptions that we get in ancient literature. The point of the description, of course, is that Sarnath is a massive and wealthy city, that it has prospered from the genocide of the people of Ib, uh, though also it's clearly profited from conquering loads of other people as well, and just maybe generally being aggressive jerks to all of their neighbors, whether they're, you know, weird globular green people or just other humans <laughs> or not, right? They've been aggressive jerks. But still, this is a very cool city with an array of colors. 
we get the green lake wall. Then we get the black streets that are laid out in this grid, which, as you say, Brandon, is how cities ought to be laid out. I was actually surprised to see the New Englander Lovecraft advocating for like a good Midwestern city. <laughs> Though, of course, Lovecraft loved Rome, and that's that's really the idea of all the great Midwestern cities to lay them out on a grid is copying Rome rather than London, for example. But at any rate, what Lovecraft describes here is that uh, the walls of the city then are desert-quarried marble, which I suppose could probably mean any color, but I suspect is meant to be white in order to contrast with the black of the streets. But then the houses are all blue. Uh, Lovecraft says that they were made of glazed brick and chalcedony. Uh, Chalcedony is a blue rock, and then the glazed brick that Lovecraft invokes here is a, it's a decorative technique, and it's actually quite common in monumental buildings of the ancient Near East. The best example, I think, of this is the recreation of the Ishtar Gate at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, which is something that you can Google and, and, and check out to get an idea of what Lovecraft has in mind here. But what it really means, right, is simply that these houses would be very, very, just extraordinarily beautiful. And of course, houses themselves should not have this type of opulence, this type of opulence that's really reserved for monumental buildings. But the monumental buildings as well get a really awesome description from Lovecraft. Uh, The palaces are all also marble, but these are tinted a variety of colors. Uh, They also have loads of pillars with carvings. The walls are all decorated with images of past glorious deeds of the people and rulers and priests of Sarnath. And then the main palace, as you said, Brandon, has amphitheaters for staging animal fights, but these could also be filled up with water so that you could stage mock naval battles or, and this I think is really awesome, have people fight deadly marine things. <laughs> no explanation <laughs> about what's meant there, but obviously, you know, this is this is sort of early tentacle Lovecraft, I suppose, as well. And, you know, to be a little bit critical, I will say I have logistical questions about this part of it, but... I was just going to say that. I, I, I really wondered how it was that he was going to get the water in and out unless he had some kind of, you know, MC Escher-esque uh, water mill. <laughs> moving the water. <laughs> right. I mean, we know how this worked in in the historical thing that Lovecraft is drawing on here, which I'll, I'll mention in a moment, but I don't think that his crater like here would re- require that or allow for that, I mean, but also require that because you could actually just use the lake for these types of battles. I don't understand why that's happening. But the point that Lovecraft is getting at here or what he's trying to do is just to call to mind the Colosseum in Rome, which of course is technically called the Flavian Amphitheater. So he's invoking things that look like Babylon. He's invoking ideas of Troy here in this description specifically as well. But then this detail is meant to get us to think about Rome. And he's doing that on purpose as like the, you know, three of the greatest cities of antiquity. There's some other places where he's also calling attention or evoking ideas of other ancient cities as well. And so that's, that's what he's doing here in terms of trying to sell us on a, on a, on a feel or on a, on a flavor while we're reading. But this is even setting aside the, the, temples as well. Uh, These are towers. They are multicolored. There are 17 of them, which I guess is 10 better than seven, which of course is what there would be in you know, the Old Testament. There would be seven of these things, but not for Lovecraft. There's got to be 17, right? It's dialing it up to 17, I think is going to be my new new (laughs) phrase for thinking about Lovecraft here. But these aren't even the central feature of the city, which is actually, there's this 
park, this massive park that is surrounded by a high wall and then covered by a glass dome. Now, I have a pretty limited knowledge of glass domes, I will say, but to my knowledge, my limited knowledge of glass domes, glass domes are something that are actually very new. They don't show up until the early 19th century. They show up in Paris and London. And even then, they're only used to cover small spaces in buildings. Of course, now, you know, today we can make much larger glass domes, but still really not something of the size that I think Lovecraft is suggesting here. Because the idea that something like an entire city park could be covered by a glass dome, even for us, is still, I think, utterly fantastical. And it's certainly utterly fantastical in you know antiquity. And that said, though, it, it really is the only fantastical element of the city, uh, the fan- only fantastical element of Sarnath, as opposed to everything else, which is improbably opulent, but not technically impossible. And so all of these details are really just to tell us that, hey, Sarnath is the greatest, coolest city that there has ever been. It was the wonder of this lost prehistoric world. And I think that this part of the story, this for me is really the highlight of the story, though, as I said, I know that it is not to everyone's taste. You certainly get a lot of information in in this part of the story. And you're right to point out about these glass domes, how that might be impossible. But certainly, you know, when you think about 20th century fantasy art of of cities and things like that. Uh, even, uh, I don't know, I feel like certain covers of, of Lord of the Rings novels, this glass dome is kind of a, a hallmark of of the fantasy city on top of a tall tower. And I wonder if that uh, imagination about that sort of came from from this type of story or the story itself. All right. Well, there we just went through a lot of description of the city, um, and there is more description of the city here about its gardens and its layouts and we learned that one of the oldest kings of the of, of Sarnath was named Zokar, but we have more narrative here as well. It's been a thousand years now since the destruction and conquest of Ib, and every year Sarnath celebrates a huge feast to commemorate Ib's destruction. There are massive performances put on by dancers and lutenists that recreate the battles of the Sarnaths versus the Ibians with music. And early on in the commemorative festivals, the priests didn't participate in the festivities because they were concerned really about, you know, the mystery of the missing Bakrug idol. Like, where did it go? Uh, but over time, the priests stopped caring about that, and they joined in uh, the orgies of the feasters. So it's now time for the 1,000-year anniversary celebration of the conquering of Ib. And as you could imagine, this is just a massively huge deal. Uh, it's so big. I mean, people have been talking about this for a decade. So like you know, 950 years after the conquering of Ib, this thing starts getting planned, it's going to be a big deal. The day of the celebration finally arrives, and Sarnath is decked out. People have come from all around. Uh, the king, Nargis High, is drunk on ancient wine from the vaults of conquered Pnath. Uh, peacock meat can be found to eat, and, and there are some really good sauces, too. Uh, you can't forget the sauces. And so while everyone is lounging and feasting and getting drunk, Gnai Ka, the high priest, sees a shadow descend from the gibbous moon 
into the lake. A green mist rises and shrouds the towers and domes of Sarnath in a sinister haze, and soon strange lights are seen on the water, and fear slowly takes hold of royal guests from Ilarnek and Rokol. Midnight comes, and the gates of Sarnath burst open, and from them flow the revelers with faces full of fright. They look mad and full of horror, and they tell of unspeakable and unendurable events. In the banquet hall of the king are to be found a horde of green, voiceless things with bulging eyes and flabby lips. And so it is that everyone has fled Sarnath, and no one dares to go there anymore. But after a long while, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed men from Falona go on an adventure to seek out and investigate Sarnath. They arrive at the lake, and they see the gray rock of Curion, and that the city of Sarnath has been reduced to a marsh. Not even the old mines remain, only water lizards. Quote, But half buried in the rushes was spied a curious green idol of stone, an exceedingly ancient idol coated with seaweed and chiseled in the likeness of Bakrog, the great water lizard. That idol, enshrined in the high temple at Ilarnek, was subsequently, was subsequently worshipped beneath the gibbous moon throughout the land of Mnar. And that's the end of the story. I, I guess we all saw this ending coming. It's literally <laughs> predicted in the, in the title of the story. But it's it's an interesting ending, right? You can commit genocide, you can have a thousand-year golden age, but you really, really shouldn't anger the god of the people you've slaughtered. So there's a sense in which this is a cautionary tale, maybe? And that is definitely something that we'll take up in the discussion. But before we move into that, we've got an announcement. Uh, really, actually, it's two announcements. And the first is simply that we're just about done with our Patreon series on At the Mountains of Madness. We are wrapping it up now, and then we're going to have a few extra bonus episodes on the legacy of the novel in other media over the summer. And it's been an absolute blast covering that book. I'm a little bit sad that we're going to be done with it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I mean, At the Mountains of Madness, as you hinted at, is such a, a foundational influence over so many weird fiction stories and even just science fiction that came after it. I mean, I've been watching the X-Files pretty slowly, and I think that that show's mythology episodes just would not exist without Lovecraft, but particularly without At the Mountains of Madness. I mean, we're not going to talk about that, but that's something I've really noticed. But also, we've just had a great time reading it. And there's so much interesting stuff in that book, you know, especially if you're into questions about civic art architecture and civil planning. Right, which uh, also appear in this story as well. And so, <laughs> right, big, yeah, big I'm, theme I'm in Lovecraft, <laughs> big motif in Lovecraft. <laughs> well, if you're into Lovecraft and you want to hear us talk about At the Mountains of Madness for 15 episodes, we hope you'll check us out on Patreon. We've actually done a lot of Lovecraft on Patreon, way more Lovecraft on Patreon than we've done here on Elder Sign. We've also done two episodes on The Rats in the Walls. We've done an episode on Dagon. We've done one on the history of the Necronomicon. But we also are soon going to be doing a series, a longer series on The Haunter in the Dark. All of that is only on Patreon. But what really matters, the really big announcement here that we want to make is that since we are nearly done with our series on At the Mountains of Madness, it is time to choose the next Elder Sign-related Patreon stretch goal. This is something we've done already. We did that as a vote on Patreon. And uh, Brandon, what was on the ballot for Patreon supporters to vote on? 
Yeah, this was a pretty stacked ballot here. There was The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, uh, The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft, I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, and then Thirteen by China Mieville. Yeah, these were all super awesome entries, and, and they were all chosen in coordination with some of our Patreon supporters. I would have loved to have done any of them, but of course, in the end, there can be only one. And it was close, but the winner ultimately was The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. Closely behind this was The Color Out of Space by H.B. Lovecraft. In fact, I really, really had to wait until the very last day of voting to call this vote because it would only have taken two new supporters on that last day of the month to vote for The Color Out of Space to push it over The Willows. And well, I would have loved to do any of these stories. I will say that I am really, really excited for The Willows. I love Algernon Blackwood. And somehow, despite the fact that I absolutely love Algernon Blackwood, we've barely covered him on the show. I especially love his wilderness horror, which also we have barely covered on the show, despite the fact that wilderness horror is my favorite weird fiction genre. Yeah, I'm really excited for this too. This is a, a story I haven't read, and I know how fundamental and foundational it is to horror as it appears in the in the 20th century and what comes after it. So I just I just can't wait to look at it from that perspective. Also knowing it's one of Lovecraft's favorite stories, looking at the influence it might have on him. I mean, that's all going to be great, but also just the pleasure of reading an Algernon Blackwood story and getting to to hang out with the text for a little while is something I am really looking forward to. Yeah, same here. It, it has been a, a decade since I've read the story, and I'm really looking forward to going back to it and, and having long conversations about it. So yeah, that is the new stretch goal, The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. We won't know for sure, of course, until we actually get into it, but probably we'll do four or five episodes on The Willows, and then we'll also do some bonus episodes about its legacy as well. But we are also combining this with another weird fiction book that we would like to cover, and that is The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. We'll do one or two episodes on that book as well. So if you would like to hear us talk about these books, talk about The Island of Dr. Moreau and The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, and you are not already with us on Patreon, we do hope that you will join us there. You can find us at patreon.com slash Media. And don't forget to review the shows you listen to on the network as well, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it. That helps us a lot find new listeners. All right, Brandon. Well, let's get into the discussion here of the doom that came to Sarnath. I've got two big categories of things I want to talk about. One of them has to be the fact that central to this story is a genocide. So we will take that up. But I want to start with what is always my bailiwick here on the show, which is the world and the world building. And I've just got a real basic fundamental question for you, Brandon, to kick off a conversation about Lovecraft's speculative uh, imaginary world here, which is, does this story take place on Earth? I think this story takes place on Earth. I think the Ibians are from the moon, maybe, or from outer space. Uh, they crash landed into, I don't know, somewhere, created a crater lake, and then uh, lived there, and then man came. But uh, yeah, my sense is it does take place on Earth. What What's your sense that it does not take place on Earth? Right, exactly. That's the that's the question here. So, uh, readers who are really steeped in Lovecraft, people who have you know read the complete Lovecraft, or at least just you know his prose anyway, and think about the lore a lot, will 
treat this story, the doom that came to Sarnath, as one of the Dreamlands stories. And, and maybe that's something I should talk about a little bit, because we've actually not covered a Dreamland story at, at all, actually, here on the, on the show yet. But the Dreamland stories are exactly what it says on the box. They're stories that are set in some place called the Dreamlands, and the dreamlands are also exactly what it says on the box. They are lands, they're, they're, they're places that exist only in a world of dreams. Now, that world of dreams is not, uh, well, it's not the Sandman. This is not like Vertigo Comics, you know, you know type, type of, uh, of, 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 of world here. But it is a, another world. It is a secondary world. So you know, it's akin to Middle Earth or Narnia, something like that, that you can get to from Earth, but you can only get there through dreaming. And so actually, in that sense, it has a, a lot in common with the Edgar Rice Burroughs Mars stories, where the way you get to Mars is to dream and kind of astrally project yourself to Mars. Uh, this is more or less the same idea that Lovecraft has with the Dreamland stories. And there are a fair number of Dreamland stories. They're all from early in Lovecraft's writing career. And they're all really drawing on the works of Lord Dunsany uh, as, as inspiration. They're Dunsanian fantasy stories. And this story gets lumped into the Dreamland stories. But I don't think, if we're reading you know, forward rather than reading backwards, I think if you know, this is the second Lovecraft story, adult Lovecraft story that you have read— there's no way you could know that this is a dreamland story. We get one hint of this uh, early on. I'll read this line. And of course, it's a long line, but I'll, I'll read the whole thing so that we have the full context for it. Why the beans and the sculptures lingered so late in the world, even until the coming of men, none can tell. Unless it was because the land of Nar is very still and remote from most other lands, both of waking and of dream. And so, there's a passage there that invokes dream, the idea that there are lands in dreams, but grammatically does not say one way or the other whether Sarnath and the land of Minar are in the land of dreams or on earth. And at this point, I don't think that Lovecraft has invented the idea of the dreamlands. In fact, if anything, thinking about this line that he's included here because it's a pretty line— later perhaps spawns the idea of of the dreamlands of of making a kind of coherent secondary world but i do think that in this story as lovecraft wrote it he was simply envisioning that this is prehistoric earth it's earth of 8000 bc which is to say 10000 years ago because this really does other than this one line feel like it's a lost civilization story it's actually very similar to uh, conan and smith with you know you know hyboria and hyperborea Exactly. It feels a lot more like it's envisioning a setting for a sword and sorcery protagonist to take place more than it is the kind of, uh, I don't know, dreamer to investigate or walk around in. Uh, yeah, this story is, is a story really about a setting. And so if you are reading backwards, which is to say, you know, from our perspective or from a later perspective, uh, to see what's here and looking for hints, you know, what was on Lovecraft's mind, if you're doing that kind of analysis, or if you're thinking, how does the secondary world function to kind of get a coherent sense of that, you might need the land of Nar to be part of the dream worlds. But if you're just reading forwards chronologically, this just feels like it's a setting and then some some uh, strong man is going to appear in this world uh, to go on adventures. And we already have this sense of deep history for the land. 
Right. And I, I want to talk about the sense of, of deep time and deep history here. But before we get there, I want to tackle one other thing, because it's, it's actually going to feed into the way that I at least am thinking about Lovecraft's use of, of history and, and the sense of deep time, which is just to narrow down where we actually think this is taking place, if it is Earth, right? If we were going to plot this story someplace on Earth in 8000 BC, which is to say 10,000 years ago, as we're told at the, the start of the story, where on Earth do you think this is taking place, Brandon? Well, it could, it could be taking place at Crater Lake in, in Oregon, uh, though I don't think that's what Lovecraft has in mind. He's evoking, I think, in his sense of these cities you know you mentioned troy and rome but also with the names asiatic cities you know in india so it really could be anywhere and so since it can be anywhere i'm going to say it actually is in uh, in in oregon in uh you know 10000 bc or something like that even though that crater did not form that long ago or wasn't uh created that long ago so it had not occurred to me, even though I love Crater Lake, it had not occurred to me that it might be Crater Lake. That was actually not the, the bit of information that Lovecraft gives us that I think is the clue to where this takes place. But actually, I think a, a strong reading could be made for that, which I'll, I'll circle back around to. Because for me, the, the real indicator of where we are is the peacocks. Uh, which is to say that we must be in India or someplace that can get peacocks yeah, from India. Right. Uh, if and and I think that this is something that Lovecraft um, would would and I do think that this is something that Lovecraft would would know and actually is a detail that he would want us to be thinking about. Uh, peacock is a delicacy in antiquity. You can get it in the Mediterranean world. I mean, you can get it in Rome. There were peacocks in the imperial gardens and so on, and of course their existence in the imperial garden the the fact that you could go over to the emperor's palace you know by invitation only of course and dine on peacock was a sign of of wealth and opulence and power right the fact that the emperor is capable of getting peacocks is is what that really is all about but here the peacocks don't seem to have come from that far away, right? They seem to be something that's indigenous to this region. And of course, just the fact that the city actually is named after a city in India, uh, even if Lovecraft perhaps denied that he knew anything about that. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I'm actually. sure he'd read Kim and forgotten you know, where he got the name from. Uh, no, I think that that's absolutely right, because I think Kim would have been a sensational or, you know, a sensation of a book in, in Lovecraft's childhood that he must have read and internalized that and perhaps internalized some of the imagery of that as well. But I do think that Lovecraft really is not at all thinking about this as a dreamland story and really is thinking about this as a secret prehistory of Earth story. And that Although all of his his dates are totally wrong for everything that we know about about history and how that's unfolded now, Lovecraft really seems here to be thinking about the world of India before the coming of Indo-Europeans. And so that this is actually a story in which Lovecraft is here thinking about race and is is working through some of his own thinking about race and its importance in history. One of the strange features of this story is that so much is made about the people of Ib and what they look like. And then at the very end of the story, we get this description of the blonde-haired and blue-eyed people of Falona who show up and find the ruins of Sarnath, and they have come from somewhere else. But we don't really get a whole lot of this description, or really any description at all, of these people of Sarnath themselves. And so... 
I think that what we have here actually is Lovecraft writing a story about the Asiatic people of India as they existed, as their civilization existed before the arrival of Indo-Europeans. Now, he has his dates for that are all wrong, uh, you know, compared to what we're able to understand about the migration of Indo-Europeans both into India and Europe now through all sorts of evidence that wasn't available in the early 20th century. But it does seem to me that that's part of what's happening here in this story is that it is a story about the wickedness of these Asiatic people and this horrible thing that they have done to these potentially space aliens that then the Indo-Europeans who move in are not going to repeat. And so there's a actually really a, even, I think, a bit of white saviorism in this story. There absolutely is. I mean, one of the questions we have to ask, uh, knowing that Lovecraft was a fairly racist man, is why have the hideous alien race be the underdog and later victor of this story? Why have the Sarnathians, the strong man, um, be the villains? And especially when we look at what sword and sorcery is about, which is kind of a, a sort of a repudiation of that underdog story format, a return to heroic fantasy where the hero is excellent in strength and in their mind and is a, a strong man in, in so many ways. So yeah, that, that's a question that really bothered me. Uh, or I should say, uh, I don't know, I gnawed at the back of my mind as I was reading this story is the way, you know, even though the conventions of sword and sorcery stories aren't really established, but the way it even seems to go against what would seem to naturally flow from somebody who is writing from the position of Lovecraft, who is so interested in the, um, you know, quote unquote, excellence of ancient cultures. Why is Sarnath doomed. This, I think, actually really parallels something that we saw in The Phoenix on the Sword, which is the very first Conan the Barbarian story, or, or just Conan story by Robert E. Howard, in which Howard is doing the same thing, except he's actually setting his world significantly earlier than, than Lovecraft is here, and, and in fact is telling a story that's even pre-Indo-Europeans and, and pre-even some important uh, geological features or geographical features of, of Earth have taken shape. But I think that Lovecraft has very much the same idea here. And this does, I think, as your instincts are, are pointing to, Brandon, have all of the hallmarks of something that's actually just kind of a backstory for a sword and sorcery setting that is going to be about these people of Falona moving into this much older or this area of much older civilization, this older civilization that has something numinous or supernatural or possibly even magical or sorcerous about it, and that we're going to, you know, get uh, one of these blonde-haired, blue-eyed men who, you know, can do a lot of push-ups and, you know, squats and so on, <laughs> uh, have to navigate this world as his people have moved in and are dealing with this this decadent and and wicked Asiatic civilization. It feels like a setup for that. That's not something Lovecraft ever went and wrote. It doesn't seem like something that Lovecraft ever would go and write, but yet somehow it feels like it's a perfect setup for that. And I think one of the really interesting features of this story, I mean, interesting in, in terms of the entire oeuvre of Lovecraft, is that we actually get a fully functional, non-human civilization here. It's depicted as being contemporary to humans, right? Lovecraft depicts 
Earth as inhabited by at least one other sentient species, and then describes these people of Ib as lingering so late in the world, even until the coming of men. And Brandon, you have, I think, already discussed a little bit that you know this feels to you like early Lovecraftian space aliens. We do get this line from, uh, we do get this line about them coming down from the moon. uh, And then even the doom itself seems to come down from the gibbous moon. But this really feels to me a lot like Lovecraft is talking about fairies. Oh man, that's a great point. You can totally cast everything that I would use as evidence for aliens because I'm reading, you know, backwards in the same light that you would, uh, a Dunsanian fairy story. You have the circle of lights and the the relationship with the light of the moon and uh, the, I don't know, the distinct from human characteristics that that make up the features of this race. That had not even occurred to me uh, because, as I said, I've been watching too much X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're right, though, this does certainly draw on some real tropes of 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 fairy stories and and particularly the way that fairy stories are being reimagined in 19th century romantic literature which is also to say early fantasy and of course one of the places where we see this the most or the most clearly in our pop culture of course is in Tolkien in the the Lord of the Rings in particular but it's there in the Hobbit as well and then of course loads and loads of other Tolkien mythos material or legendarium I guess is the word that we use for for Tolkien where we have this idea of you know the, the world of elves is coming to an end and now it's going to be the age of man in fact specifically it's going to be the four Fourth age. Now that Sauron has been like really truly defeated, not only kind of like partially defeated, like we thought last time at the end of the second age, but <laughs> now here at the third age, you know, really Sauron is defeated. And with that, one of the things that happens is that the magic of the elves is broken because it's connected to the One Ring, and so the world of elves has been waning for a long time, but now it is really coming to an end. But just this idea that there is an age of man, right, is something that shows up here. This idea that there actually were other non-human sentient species on Earth that were replaced by humans in some way, and that it's the existence of those people, those other civilizations, or at least this other species, that have entered our folklore as fairy stories. And this is an idea that really ran rampant, I think, in the the 19th century and up to the middle part of the 20th century that certainly influences Tolkien's legendarium, but also hugely influences weird fiction. Uh, we've, we've definitely seen this in Gene Wolfe with The Fifth Head of Cerberus, but Robert E. Howard has stories about this too, about you know little people. What if they were actually real, uh, that they were driven out by the arrival of Indo-Europeans uh, in in Britain, or or just Homo sapiens in general in Britain, uh, maybe not even necessarily Indo-Europeans, but that some of them have survived, and you know there could be a horror story about that, right? This is a real common trope in weird fiction, and it does seem like Lovecraft is playing with that. But I do think it is also really important here that we've got in this very early Lovecraft story this sense of of cosmic horror because. Although I'm the one who's kind of pushing the idea of thinking about them as fairies, I do actually think, like you do, Brandon, that these people actually came from space. I think what Lovecraft, another thing that Lovecraft is really working on here is the idea of decline, which we see, I mean, even in at the Mountains of Madness is a major feature of that 
novel and thinking about uh, what happens to a strong race that allows them to, or what are the conditions under which they decline and are conquered or something like that. Obviously there's a ton of like racial overtones in that. Um, but also Lovecraft, I think was reading a lot of the rise and fall of the, the fall of the Roman empire, you know, a lot of, uh, Edward Gibbons and uh, thinking a lot about decline in civilization. And so here in this story, even, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk, speak more to the alien business in a bit uh, because it ties in here. Lovecraft is thinking about decline, right? And so you have these hallmarks of decline in Sarnath as Lovecraft would see them. You know, the king being drunk, the priests forgetting their duties, essentially the, the elites, the aristocrats uh, no longer living up to their m- moral duties to the civilization, but then on the side of Ib, and, and this is something I think Lovecraft develops more in At the Mountains of Madness, you have this sense that these people lost the thing that makes them them. Like if they once were of a space traveling race, it must have meant they were uh, extremely technologically advanced in so many ways, and yet they're marooned in a sense on this lake and, and maybe their spaceship crashing is what caused the crater. And now all they do is continue to repeat, I don't know, worship or these practices that cause them to stagnate that are like, well, we're here and we're not changing. They don't adapt. And I think that that's kind of another thing that's going on here. And the Sarnathians got too comfortable and then they're, destruction of these people was an act of hubris too. So there's a lot going on here. I guess the point I'm really making is that Lovecraft is super into the questions of what causes a civilization or a race to decline. That certainly is the central idea of the story. And and this is a great trope of weird fiction as well. And one that Lovecraft really loves, this idea of a lost civilization, which we, we've talked about you know quite a bit already, and especially have talked about quite a bit in our coverage of At the Mountains of Madness. But you know, even especially in the early 20th century, this idea that the past is not really what we think it is, that there have been these other civilizations that have declined and and fallen, that maybe even declined and and fell from greater heights than we ourselves have achieved, which also, at least in terms of thinking about the glass dome, is true of Sarnath in this story, in addition to you know whatever we might be able to say about the the, the people of Ib. And so you know, we have that motif repeated here for, I guess, really kind of two civilizations, both the people of Ib and the people of Sarnath. And then we clearly have here as well, then these people of Falona, the blonde-haired and blue-eyed people who are coming in and are going to build another great civilization, which if that really is India, and we're about to see the foundation of ancient India, Lovecraft almost certainly is thinking about that civilization as one that reached some kind of pinnacle and then declined and fell as as well as as other things happened and so it's it's almost like lovecraft is thinking here of a kind of like secular uh cyclical view of of time in which this same story is going to get repeated over and over again which is certainly also something we have seen him do in at the mountains of madness I mean, I mean that's absolutely right. Except you know, Lovecraft was always adding these uh, these aliens were the first one 
to fall. And, and maybe we came from them. I don't know. I mean, I guess we do know, except that, except that not in this story. That is not a period right, in, not this in this story. Yeah. Yeah. The ambience are too, too, too disgusting to touch, uh, to, 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 for us to have been made from their genetic material. Well, there's one more thing I want to talk about here on the issue of, of deep time and history before we go and talk about genocide. And that's simply the business of textual transmission, which is to say, how do we know about Sarnath? And, and of course, Lovecraft tells us in the story, he's got uh, brick cylinders of Kadatheron and then also the papyrus of Ilarnak. And when he gives us this information, what he's doing is drawing on the record-keeping mechanisms of ancient Samaria, that's the cylinders, and ancient Egypt, that's the papyrus. There is then, though, a second layer to this world-building, which is to say it's it's these texts that he invokes early on in the story and then doesn't really ever come back to. He doesn't tell us where these uh, brick cylinders and and papyri are or how you know he, Lovecraft, or maybe we should say the fictional person writing this account, has access to these documents, these records. That just doesn't appear here. But it's certainly something that well, it's a question that I have as a reader, but also certainly if I was reading this contemporary to its publication, potentially also then thinking there are going to be more stories about this world in some way, I would want to know how this world, this prehistoric world has survived for us. Like, where are these texts? And so that's the question that I don't think we can really answer, but that I would love for you to speculate on, Brandon, is, you know, where are these texts? How, how do people have access to these texts in our real world? To me, this is what I love about Lovecraft. This is what I come to Lovecraft to the, the, the lost and mysterious texts that he just references as if they are referenceable in some way, right? This, the sense that you could, uh, stumble across a papyri manuscript of a sort or these things and have them translated, or you have the skills to translate them and, uh, discover some lost information about a lost civilization, um, that perhaps you could then lead a dig on and find out it's what what I think matters about these references is that it hints at this I don't know apparatus of scholarship that is that is kind of outside of the norm outside of consensus this kind of fringe these fringe ideas that point to all kind of potential in in the world that we just don't think of when we go to real scholarship to find out information about the past or the deep past and 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 to me it's the ability of lovecraft to not care about what he means when he says and if you look at the brick uh cylinders of Kadatheron, this would be there to just have that be out there is uh it's a big part of the mystery and and the wonder that I think, you know, we talk about wonder fiction and weird fiction. It's it's Lovecraft's blend of that, that addition of wonder that I think uh, adds so much to these texts. But I suppose they'd be found in a museum. You know, all this stuff belongs in a museum anyway. <laughs> well, famously, right, we all know people really, really have thought that the Necronomicon, which Lovecraft invented, is, is a real thing. Uh, I certainly... 
I have gone to my public library when I was 14 and uh, couldn't find it in the catalog and so have gone over to the librarian and asked if we could get that through interlibrary loan uh, to discover, of course, that it's not a real thing <laughs> that doesn't exist. Lovecraft <laughs> made it up, although you can do this now, of course, because lots of people have published books called Necronomicon. And that's the famous example of this. But Lovecraft invents so many of these things. And I'm sure that people had this response to these texts as well, and maybe even especially to these particular texts, these brick cylinders and these papyri, because I do think that that's part of what Lovecraft is doing here in writing this story, is that he's creating the illusion that part of the explosion of archaeology that we get around the globe, but especially in the, the Near East in the late 19th and early 20th century, that's just unearthing discovery after discovery after discovery, including just the existence of Sumeria at all. This huge civilization that existed a millennia before we thought there was any civilization has only recently been discovered, as Lovecraft is writing this, that it's it's kind of a hoax, right? That he wants people to think that he's referring to some recent discovery that, well, I guess you just missed that newspaper article about it, but like people are already, you know, academics are already at work translating these things. And here's one of the things that we've learned from this. And I that is a, a reality effect that I just adore in Lovecraft. It's one that we just can't really do anymore in our world. It's something I bemoan about the state of our of our current world, because I love the idea that we could find you know, whole massive civilizations that we just didn't know existed before. But it does seem like that golden age of that type of discovery is is gone. And this is one of the places where I can go to recapture that feeling. It just it really calls back to, you know, the discovery of the the Valley of the Kings in Egypt and all of that sort of stuff that when we look back at this time of free travel, no passports, you know, uh, maybe post-World War One sense of optimism, people can go from place to place, this, this idea that they're Yes, that there are civilizations, that there are artifacts to be discovered that really launches the idea of weird fiction in some way. That what these people believed is might be no less true than the things that we believe about the gods we worship, about the things that the artifacts that sustain our civilization, about, you know, all these sorts of beliefs we have about reality, that when you cast them back 5,000 years or longer, 10,000 years, that these people had real beliefs that the state that sustained their realities as well. And picking those apart and playing with them is one of the real, I think, uh, joys of reading Lovecraft is thinking about all the different ways things might be true in the same way that we use truth today for these other civilizations. You know, maybe you need a green stone idol to support your civilization. Who knows? Yeah, let's continue thinking about statues and and beliefs here and move into talking about what is really the action of the story or what supplies really the plot of the story, which is this act of genocide. What is it that you think motivates the genocide of the people of Ib? I, I really think Lovecraft has it here. It's 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 racial hatred or species hatred uh, that that motivates this genocide. They Lovecraft 
includes many hallmarks in that you see in racist literature in in characterizing the uh, recipient of racial hatred. You know, they're disgusting. They're uh, gross. They don't do the right things. They are lazy compared to us. We're industrious. We're building this city. We're mining. And you guys are just sitting over there with your stupid gray monuments like you're a lazy, gross, disgusting group of people. And 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 that's kind of what motivates it is not scapegoating. Though those ideas, those concepts are part of um, scapegoating, but just genuine hatred of this race of people. And the Sarnathians just don't want them around. And then what's crazy is that the Sarnathians attribute their ongoing success as a civilization to that first conquest of the Ibians, that they, because they continue to succeed after that conquest, it's that conquest that they celebrate time and again and recreate over and over and over again, that the basis of their civilization does become, uh, you get the sense if you were to be a person there that you'd hear stories about, you know, the Ibians under the bed or somebody might be a, a secret Ibian in society and that they would become a scapegoat for the ills of, of Sarnathian culture. Even in just the description of just this this hatred of the bodies of the people of Ib, which is really all we get. There is a bit, I guess, about their culture. There might be some sense in which the Sarnathians hate their religion, but that's really not what's emphasized. It really is just a hatred of the bodies of the people of Ib. But in addition to that, we actually get a not even really a justification of the genocide, but an explanation that the genocide of the people of Ib is really the fault of the people of Ib themselves, because they're the ones who decided to linger in this world later than they were supposed to. Don't they know that this is the age of man, that they should have left a long time ago? Well, it's your your own fault that you're still here to get genocided by us, is right there in in the, the way that the Sarnathians think about the people of Ib, which is very subtle, but I think also ex- extremely interesting because, right, one of the questions that we have already brought up in our, our, our coverage so far is this question of whether or not we're actually meant to be cheering for the Sarnathians here, or if actually we're meant to sympathize with the people of Ib, which is, I guess, another way of asking, what is the moral of this story? I don't know. I, I think... Again, that Lovecraft is really trying to engage with questions of decline rather than look at uh, causes of genocide or whether or not there's a moral aspect to decline, though he seems to indicate in the case of Sarnath that there is a kind of moral aspect to the decline. They've forgotten essential truths about the foundation of their culture, which is that it was built upon the genocide of another culture. They are getting lazy, engaging too much in celebrations rather than uh, focusing on administering rights or being a good king or, or, or something along those lines. They're having too many, you know, feasts of orgies. Um, and so I, I, I don't know what the moral of this story is. I, I don't know that it has one. I think Lovecraft is trying to do a kind of history that does attempt 
to have a moral, but is more interested in the material culture of these people, the realities of what led them to rise, and then that they forgot their to be on guard. They forgot to look out for their doom. And so as exactly at the point when they should have been on high alert, you know, everybody knows millennia anniversaries are scary. Uh, <laughs> they, they closed their eyes and had a party and then they got destroyed. So I don't think there's a moral other than, you know, vigilance is a requirement of civilization on some level, but I, uh, but I don't really see another, a moral here. The, certainly the way that Lovecraft describes the Ibians has some really ugly racial and racist aspects to it. Um, the way he makes it seem like they deserved it. Um, all of that's really ugly, but at the same time, he's writing to uh, an American culture or an American audience where the underdog is really a, a big part of a storytelling. And so to have the Ibians come back and wing and win certainly paints them in the light of uh, that kind of underdog story, especially when they rebel or attack at the moment of, you know, highest, the highest possible festivity for this other culture. I, I do think that we are supposed to think of the Sarnathians as not the good guys in this story, though it's easy to read them as the good guys, I guess, right at the start. Certainly, you know, I sympathize with the Sarnathians who are destroyed in this supernatural flood at the, the end of the story, right? I mean, I, you know, no, no, nobody should die that way. But I do think that this is supposed to be some kind of of cautionary tale here, and that the Sarnathians are the bad guys in the sense that a thousand years ago they made a bad decision about something. But I think for me, the the question really hinges on what is the mechanism of their doom, or or maybe another way to to ask that question, Brandon, is is what action that they took? What is the action that they took that led to their doom? Is it the genocide? Is it is it the slaughter, the extermination of the people of Ib, or is it something else that they did? Okay, so it seems to me like they didn't actually kill the Ibians at all, right? They just pushed them into the lake. And maybe being gelatinous and, so I don't know, they have some physical feature that allows them to live underwater, or they got in their spaceship and flew away. But it's this idol that really seems to drive uh, a lot of the the conflict in this story. It goes missing and then it returns and that's what really brings their doom. So I think Bakrug is a, a god of real power and the Ibians were his worshipers. And so he's the one who really brought doom to Sarnath. But I think he used the instrument of the Ib at the at the end of the book that's my sense but it wasn't the the fact that the ib were killed because i don't even know if they were really even though it's i don't know it's really unclear to me because did they who came down from the moon and what are the light circles all of this is spaceship imagery to me yeah let me let me tug on that thread here i'm going to just going to read the line here the passage that we get about the act of genocide here's what lovecraft writes so one day, the young warriors, the slingers and the spearmen and the bowmen, 
marched against Ib and slew all the inhabitants thereof, pushing the queer bodies into the lake with long spears because they did not wish to touch them. And so, you know, the word there is slew. That means they killed them all. But I think your suggestion that perhaps they didn't actually kill them, <laughs> they were mostly dead or something, <laughs> you know, because they're, they they're aliens. Right. Uh, you know, there could be something to that reading. I don't think it's one that I share. But I do think that what really matters is that the dumb thing that the Sinathians do that seals their doom is not that act. It is the taking of the statue, right? So, yeah, you can commit all the genocide you want to commit. That's fine. That's not going to come back to haunt you in any supernatural way or horror story way. But do not do not take the idols of the defeated back to your city. Leave them where they are or destroy them completely or something like that. It's actually bringing the statue of, of Bokrug uh, you know, into Sarnath that then seals their fate. So in the sense that there's some kind of cautionary tale here, some kind of warning to Lovecraft's audience. I guess that is it, which I, I think then has to be a kind of metaphor for don't try to appropriate the culture of the people you've defeated. If you're going to defeat people, really defeat them and leave their culture alone. I don't know, you know, who Lovecraft thinks needs that warning in, you know, almost 1920 or so. You know, and of course, it doesn't necessarily have to be that he thinks anyone needs that warning in some kind of urgent level, but it's clearly something that's on his mind for some reason. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what that is, but it is interesting to me that there doesn't seem to be any moral issue with the act of genocide itself. Right. That's a real problem in this story that, that gen you know, that's what I mean, that Lovecraft is just kind of uh, casually observing these facts of history saying, you know, genocide happens and then a culture is defeated and another culture rises. And it seems to me as though he's trying to take this new, morally neutral position. But at the same time, he seems really concerned about uh, the idol of Balrock. So the, the, the idol of Bakrug. So it's just a real, it's a, it's a confusing element, I think, uh, in this story. I agree. And this is definitely one that I would love to talk more with, with listeners about here, what they think about uh, the, the moral question here or the cautionary tale question of this story. But I think that is going to do it for us on this episode, at least. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. If you would like to hear us talk even more about Lovecraft, which is to say 15 episodes on At the Mountains of Madness, we hope that you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. And of course, if you join us now, that will help us get to our goal of doing another bonus series, this one on The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. Next time here on Elder Sign, we will be back with the short story Looking for Jake by China Mieville. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.